I'm having you turn to Ephesians 4, though we are in an interlude in our series through the book of Ephesians, and we are expanding over these next few weeks on a phrase at the end of verse 28 in chapter 4 of Ephesians. We saw a few weeks ago there that the Bible says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands. And then here's the purpose for all of that. The reason that we seek to amass possessions is not to simply hold on to them and to hoard them, but rather that he may have something to share with those in need. This is a good time for us as a church to have this interlude to reflect upon how God has blessed us both individually and as a church in order to be channels of blessing into the lives of others as we meet their needs. This is a good time for us as a church to do that because you've come today during a month of reflection for our church. It's a month of reflection because our church was started 10 years ago this month. As you heard Pastor Matt announce, in two weeks, two weeks from tonight on October 2nd, we'll have our celebration dinner to celebrate God's 10 years of faithfulness and grace to our church. I invite you all to attend. If you haven't gotten your tickets, then I encourage you to do that during our uh, refreshment time at the Resource Center. And so because of that, I've decided to take a few weeks for a brief series in the, for a brief interlude in our series in the book of Ephesians, expanding on that purpose clause at the end of verse 2028. Last week we saw that in chapter 5 and verse 15 of Ephesians, Paul, who wrote this letter, tells us to, quote, make the most of every opportunity. And then we saw the parallel passage in the book of Colossians. Now, I don't In fact, I don't ever recall looking at a parallel passage. That can sound like a dangerous phrase to just hook to something else that you want to say something about in the Bible, and we don't do that here. But indeed, the books of, the letters of Ephesians and Colossians are parallel to each other. And I explained that last week. If you want to listen to that recording, that recording, like all of ours, are on our website. But the subject matter is is, uh, the same. And in fact, you have the same phraseology in many cases, including making the most of every opportunity. So in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, you have that very, that very phrase, make the most of every opportunity, but then there's an explanatory phrase. Make the most of every opportunity. Be careful in the way that you behave toward outsiders. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this about that phrase, make being careful about how we behave toward outsiders. It says these words imply that believers should conduct themselves so that the way they live will attract, impress, and convict non-Christians and give the unbelieving community a favorable impression of the gospel. Now, if you've been here for a while, that last phrase, giving unbelievers a favorable impression of the gospel, you might wonder about that because you've been taught a bit better than that. Because the truth is, unbelievers will never ever have a favorable impression of the gospel unless and until the Holy Spirit of God moves upon the heart of that that person. The Bible teaches that apart from a work of grace on the heart of an individual, no one will ever have a favorable impression of the gospel. But what we can do is give the community a more favorable view of Christians 
and thereby gain a hearing for the gospel. And I would not only say what we can do, but in fact what we, what we should do. Only those on whom God's Spirit moves will respond favorably, but as one pastor has said, it seems that the more I give the gospel, the more elect people there seem to be. And the more contacts that we make and the more favorable impression we as Christians give, being careful in the way we act toward outsiders, the more opportunity we have to give that very gospel. And so, I did a series in the early days of our church called Full Service. And the title was designed to communicate that we want to be a church where everyone fully serves and a church that offers a full range of services in our community. And on the first of those two things, everyone fully serving, we, as I mentioned last week, have a very high percentage of our congregation that's engaged in active service through God's church. We even have a ministry that's devoted to helping connect you to ministry. We call it community service, and if you want to know about that, then ask at the information center during our break. But while there are many advantages to meeting in a rented facility like this for a church that wants to be a full-service church, there are still advantages to meeting in a rented facility, believe it or not. Let me mention some, but then I'll talk about some disadvantages for a church that aspires to be full-service in the community. But what are, the, what are some of the advantages? Well, the truth is, one advantage is we are constantly reminded as a congregation that the church is not brick-and-mortar that the church is not a building. The truth is, for the first several centuries of the church, there were not places like this for the church to meet publicly because they were persecuted and in catacombs and, and hiding out. In parts of God's world right now, particularly in places like China, as the church is persecuted, those who are faithful to God's word and to the gospel have to meet in homes and have to do so underground. We are constantly then reminded every Sunday we come in here, you know, the church is God's people gathered before God to carry out his, his work as he is instructed. It is not a building. And there are other advantages. There's no maintenance for us to this building, no liability. It's relatively low cost for us. There are a number of advantages, but there are disadvantages. And increasingly so, if we as a church aspire to be a full-service church in the community because we do not have a place to carry out those services. And that's why, at the beginning of this year, I committed to you that we are actively looking for what we call a ministry center. You could call that a service center since ministry and service are synonyms in Scripture. And we said that we'll report to you by the end of this year and at least give you an idea of what we're going to do with regard to a ministry service center in the, in the short term. Now, as we began last week, then, to look at this idea of being a full-service church, and as God then blesses us with a ministry center to carry out those services, then it's important for us to know what service is, what it looks like, and what our role is within it. And so I gave you a definition of ministry or service, it's taken from a book called On Being a Servant of God, and I call your attention to that definition in your outline that's inserted in your program. We filled in these blanks last week, and so we have them filled in for you. Service takes place when 
Divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. And what I'd like to do over these next few weeks then is take each of those four components, divine resources, human needs, loving channels, the glory of God, and then explain those more fully and then look at a couple of these other items at the, uh, that are also included at the bottom of your, your outline. We looked at a portion of what divine resources means as it relates to service. Service takes place when divine resources meet human needs. We saw last week from the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. That's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We saw there that the disciples had first suggested that Jesus send the crowd, send the crowd home. Jesus rejected that idea, so Philip admitted that there wasn't enough money on hand to buy food for such a crowd, and so allocating more money from the disciples' budget wasn't the answer either. For some people, allocating more money is, is always the solution to every problem, particularly in politics. And then Andrew finds a, a small lad with a tiny lunch of five loaves, two fish, and it's totally inadequate to, to meet the need. And so Andrew asks, but what are these, these five loaves, these two fish, among so many? And of course the answer is, apart from God, they're, they're nothing. And they say to themselves, how can, we, how can we satisfy the need with so little resources? And as they asked that question, they were they were revealing a mindset that I've mentioned to you the last few weeks, a mindset that they are manufacturers rather than distributors. That it's their job to, to create the resources, but in fact the resources belong to God, the resources come from God, and we are simply called to distribute what is already His. So they thought it was their responsibility to come up with the money or the food or some clever way to solve the problem, and all the while, Jesus knew, the Bible says, what he would do. And Jesus wanted them as he wants us to see ourselves not as manufacturers, but as distributors of what belongs to him. He took that little boy's lunch, he looked up to heaven, he blessed it, and then it multiplied in his divine hand. And then the disciples distributed what he multiplied to the crowd. Now hear this, friends. Once you accept that you're a distributor, a distributor of what God owns, rather than a manufacturer, then you'll experience a new freedom and joy in serving God. You see, I am very good at giving away other people's money. And if I realize that even the stuff that's been entrusted to me is not mine, I'll be very good at giving it away as well. A new freedom and a new joy. And so we won't be afraid of new challenges because we know that God has the resources to meet those challenges. We won't be frustrated trying to manufacture everything needed to get the job done and when God then blesses the work, who will receive the credit, the praise, the honor, the glory? Well, it will be God. Because we acknowledge that it is His to begin with, and we're simply distributing what He has already owned and provided. 
And so what are these divine resources? Well, we saw last week that they can really be summed up in the word, word grace. John chapter 1, we're told from the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. The image is like that of an ocean, one wave after another coming into shore in unending fullness from God's bounty. And you all know that you don't earn grace and you don't deserve grace. You simply receive it as God's loving gift and then you share it with others. And so in ministry, we are to be distributors, channels, not cul-de-sacs, not reservoirs. Hoarding what God has given, but rather giving what God has provided. So that's why Jesus said, given it will be given to you. A good measure that's pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's a basic law of God's economy that servants who know how poor they are become the richest. And those who give the most receive the most and therefore have the most to give. But because we often have an, a manufacturer mentality, we are prone to depend upon our own resources. And here's what that does. This is practically how that looks. A person who has a manufacturer mindset is often fixated on what we cannot do. We can't do that. We could never do that. Well, who says we can? Well, we don't have. Go down the list. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. Does God have enough people? Does God have enough money? If God wants it done, God has all the resources necessary to get it done. And so, friends, you know that you have slipped into a manufacturer mentality, as I am so prone to do, as all of us are prone to do. When you begin to think in terms of what we can't do, rather than, by God's grace and through His riches, what we can do. Now, the truth of the matter is, there are times where God has said, I'm not going to provide those resources for you to do at this time. That's within His per sovereign prerogative. And we're foolhardy to say, we're going to steam ahead if God hasn't provided the, the resources. But what we should always do is take a distributor's mentality that says... We can do this. We can dream. We can, we can have a big vision because we have a big God who can provide all that's necessary to accomplish this marvelous thing in His world for His honor, His praise, and His glory. Paul had a distributor's mentality. He understood that what he did and all that he did came from the gracious hand of God. And so he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace was given to me, and it was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them, and yet it's not I, but the grace of God that's at work within me. It was by God's grace that Paul was what he was, and Paul did what he did, and the same is true for you and for me. And I showed you last week what this Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God's able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. You see, friends, it is dying churches that focus on resources. Vital churches focus on opportunities. Dying churches focus on resources. 
Vital, alive churches focus on opportunities. And they see the opportunities, and they ask God, who owns all the resources, to provide those resources necessary in order to fulfill and take advantage of those opportunities. Now, some of you have had the experience, experience of talking with me from time to time about some proposed venture, and you've begun, as I often do in my own mind, and I have to be reminded, and I'm reminding you now, you've started with what we can't do. And I'm just telling you that I don't want to think that way, and I don't think you should think that way. Dying churches focus on resources. Alive and vital churches focus on the opportunities that our God provides to us in his providence and then depends on him to provide the resources to carry it out. And so we dream big. We have a big vision for what God can and will do for us now in the next 10 years, building on the foundation of his grace these first 10 years. And so what is service? Service is when divine resources meet, and here's the second thing in your outline, meet human needs. And I'd like today to focus on this issue of meeting human needs. If we have time, we'll look at some of the others, but probably not. Meeting human needs. In ministry, we're called to live, not for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Ministry is not just a way for us to have a church, for some of us who are paid to make a living. It's an opportunity to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he was here on earth, is it not true that he met human needs and all kinds of human needs? And often Jesus was not thanked, and certainly many times he was not appreciated. John chapter 5, there's recorded a time where he healed a man who turned state's evidence and got Jesus into trouble with the authorities. Talk about not being appreciated. And yet we live in a world that's filled with people who have incredible needs of all kinds. And we can relate to those needs in one of several ways. I'm going to give you four ways that we can relate to the human needs that are all around us. Here's first. We can be blind to those needs and simply continue to live for ourselves. But if we take that route and we see the needs all around us and in our community and we choose to be blind to them and to simply live for our own selfish pursuits, we can't call ourselves followers of Jesus. It's not what Jesus did when he saw the, the crowds and he was moved, the Bible tells us, with compassion for them. And so he used the resources that he had available to him in order to relieve their misery and as a down payment to them on a time that will come in the future when all human misery will be relieved from this, from this earth. If we choose to be blind to them, then we are not following the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then it's the next verse, famously. We sometimes, we sometimes separate 
Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 that says, Let this attitude or let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then goes on to talk about the fact that he had the glories of heaven, but he did not consider the glories of heaven something to be held on to, but came, lowered himself, humbled himself, became a servant, and endured death, even death on a cross for us. But that is prefaced with, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. For the Christian, it's one possible way to relate to human needs, but it's not really an option for us to be blind to them and to continue to live for ourselves. Here's a second way we could relate to human needs. And that is take advantage of them to benefit ourselves. Now, you say, I see whatever kinds of needs around me, how is it that I might use those to, to my advantage? Well, not necessarily monetary advantage. In fact, not usually monetary advantage. But rather, a desire to use those needs and our meeting of those needs for things like recognition, for things like position, a title, honor, privilege, if we're honest, we can be motivated lots of different ways as we do good things, ill-motivated, for our own honor, our own prestige, a title, or a position. That's why early on in the life of our church, we made it a point to be very, very, very careful who it is we put in leadership in our church. You see, I know from my own heart, I know from my reading of Scripture, and I know from experience that many times folks aspire to leadership not for the purest of motives. They like the title. They like the position. They like the recognition. That might be the so-called highest offices in the church. It might be any position within the church. And so it can apply to you as well as to me. And especially in the early years of a, of a church plant, a new church, you have folks who come in who want to be big fish in our small pond. Now that the pond is a bit bigger, you don't have that problem quite as apparent. But in the early days, we made a number of hoops that one had to jump through in order to be a leader in our church. And for the person who would be a, a servant leader, in quotes, predator upon a small pond, those hoops and that length of time are enough to scare them off. And believe it or not, in the early days of our church, we actually had people who came who aspired that way, and when they heard what it meant and what was required to be a leader in our church, they didn't stick around very long. But God allowed us to do that to protect our church so that the, the folks that we have serving are people with servants' hearts who want to do it for the glory of the Lord Jesus rather than their own recognition and for a position and for a title. So there are four ways, at least four ways, to relate to human needs. Be blind to them, take advantage of them to benefit ourselves. Another one is, we can know about them, but choose to do nothing. Jesus told the story of the, the Great Samaritan. You're all familiar with that. And Jesus talks about a man who was beaten and robbed, left for dead. And he had several passers-by 
that Jesus describes, and he describes what they did and very poignantly what they, what they failed to do in order to alleviate this man's suffering. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus said, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And notice who passed by, a priest. Happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He saw the man, he knows the need, but he makes it a point to pass by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Both of them passed by on the, the other side so as to remove themselves from even the sight of this man. Now the truth is, it's impossible for us, as God's servants, to do something about every need that we see or every need that we hear about. But we must never, friends, do what these two religious guys did. Being thankful for the opportunity to escape responsibility. Have you ever done that? You know, I'm glad I don't, I don't have to go out of my way to fill that need. And we have to guard against the kind of professionalism that leads to a hard heart. And that's what these men had. They were religious professionals. And in turn, they had developed a, a hard heart toward the needs of others. In Christian service, it's always necessary to have a sensitive spirit and a tender heart, but it's easy to become calloused. Many of you are servants in our church. 70, 80% of you serve. But you know that it's very easy to go through the routine and become hard and the work becomes routine and perfunctory. And then we can say with the backslidden priest of Malachi's day, in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 13, they said, Oh, what a weariness this work of the Lord is. And so we must be careful. I must be careful. To always maintain a tender heart toward those who have the needs that Christ has called us to meet. And the people that God calls us to serve have all kinds of needs. There are physical needs, emotional, relational, financial. But I want you to understand, friends, that at rock, at rock bottom, the most important need that all people have is to be rightly related to God and His will. And so that's the fourth way to relate. You can seek to meet those needs, but then point them to their most important, their real need. Now, when we say that, it doesn't mean that the Word of God or prayer is going to pay somebody's bills or feed their stomach. And so we don't just quote a Bible verse to hungry people, pray for them, smile, and then say, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. You all remember that from James chapter 2? And James condemns that where he says faith without works is a dead faith and it's illustrated by that very kind of thing. That's not what we do. But unless we help people grow into a right relationship with God, whatever help that we give them is only going to be a stopgap. It's going to be a quick fix until the next time they have a need and then the cycle is repeated. That's probably one of the great differences between ministry service from a Christian perspective and just humanitarian benevolence. 
Both can be done in love. Both can put food on the table, shoes on someone's feet. But only Christian ministry can put grace in the heart so that lives are changed and problems are really solved. And so the very best thing we can do for people is not to solve their problems for them, but so relate them to God's grace that they'll be enabled to solve their problems and not repeat them. One person has said it this way, the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. Now that statement is true as far as it goes. The heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. But sometimes it isn't what we've done that creates the difficulty, it's what others have done to us. And so children sometimes suffer from what their parents do, and the opposite's also true. Or if a company president embezzles money and he wrecks the business, scores of innocent workers are out of jobs. People may not cause their own problems, but hear this, but if they relate to their problems the wrong way, they'll make the problems worse. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And that's where the grace of God in the gospel comes in. In order to be a church that offers a full range of services, it means we offer ministries to meet needs, not only those in our congregation, but those outside our congregation, and sometimes those are temporal needs of all sorts that I described last week. I'll remind you of some of them now. Benevolence ministries. So angel food ministries or gleaners. Training for family issues like parenting and marriage. Helping people navigate through the transitions in life that come through natural phases like graduation and marriage, children coming into the family, midlife crisis, retirement. Meeting the special needs of men and women, counseling and help for those who are trapped in addictions. Help for those who are grieving because they've lost a loved one. Helping those who have experienced the pain of divorce. You can have outreach ministries to prisons. To those who are inquiring about the Christian faith through evangelistic studies in homes. I mentioned last week outreach ministries like sports to children in our community. Ministry to our youth and to the youth of our greater community. And I said last week that the range of services we can offer is literally limitless. Ministries of inreach and outreach, and the only limit of what can be done is our sanctified imagination, and then what our God, who has all resources, chooses to bestow upon us at this time. Now, having said all of that, we can meet those needs, and I am making the case we should meet those needs. But always, always, always as a means to show people their real need. And I want to make sure that as we seek to become a full-service church, that we understand as a congregation that meeting all of those needs, as good as they are, is not the mission of the church. It is a means to accomplish the mission. Do you know that right after the story of the Good Samaritan, as Luke records it in Luke chapter 10, right after that story, Luke records... Jesus going to the home of Mary and Martha. You all remember that story? Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha. And Martha has been busy making preparations for 
for Jesus and for, and for dinner. And Mary is at Jesus' feet worshiping him. And Martha is increasingly concerned and upset even that Mary's not helping her as she thinks she ought. And she complains to Jesus, Jesus, why don't you tell, I'm paraphrasing, why don't you tell Mary to get busy and do something important instead of worshiping you? And here's Jesus' reply. Martha, Martha. <laughs> and you all have heard me say, if Jesus calls your name once, that's one thing. If he says your name twice, you're in big trouble. You're worried and upset about many things. Now notice this, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what's better. And it will not be taken away from her. All of the stuff that you're doing will end, will be taken away. But a relationship with and worship of our God will last forever. It's more important. It's better, says Jesus. It's no accident that as you read through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts that describe the first decades of the church, that what you find highlighted in the ministry of the early church in every town to which Jesus' apostles went, what you find highlighted is the proclamation of the gospel. That's no accident. That's because that's the mission that we've been called to fulfill. To make disciples through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. The credibility, not of the gospel, but the credibility of those of us who dispense the gospel is enhanced when we are willing to show the love of Jesus in meeting the needs of those to whom we proclaim. And so meeting those needs is not an end in itself. It's not the mission, but it is a means by which we accomplish the mission of making disciples as we proclaim the gospel both here and abroad. Now it's important for me to emphasize that because churches that take seriously this idea of meeting needs in their, in their church and in the community have a very real danger of allowing the needs to overtake the message. If you're not careful, that happens. It's happened throughout history. Needs overtake real need, and then we begin to cater. Now hear this, cater rather than truly serve. You know, I'm afraid that many of our churches today are catering to people rather than truly serving. We begin to cater by watering down the message. Friends, if we, if we water down the gospel at all, then we have failed in our mission. No matter who we feed, no matter how much good we do in the community, no matter how cool people think we are, we've begun to cater rather than truly serve. Some of you are familiar with some church history, and you'll know that going back about 150 years, there was a movement within ecclesiastical circles, church circles, known as the social gospel. So the latter part of the 19th century, the first part of the 20th century, the social gospel was the idea that the gospel, the good news is that God is relieving human misery, temporal human miser misery, and so the church is called to feed the hungry, solve world peace, take care of disease, anything that's gone wrong in God's world has now become the mission of the church. 
the mission of the church Jesus gave is to make disciples. And we do these things as a means to help us do that. And that's why then, as you think about how God can use you and use us collectively to meet needs in our community, as you come with a ministry, as you think about how God has equipped you for ministry, you need to also think about how that ministry is going to help make disciples. And from a church-wide standpoint, a church leadership standpoint, as you put resources into that ministry, we have to think about how is that going to help us make disciples. You see, ministry is not just any good thing that we could do. But ministry is doing these good things in order to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. And so take, for example, our men's ministry. Our men's ministry is not simply a means to make better men. But it's about making and maturing male disciples. If we just make better men without them coming to Jesus, you know what we've done? We've created Pharisees who do the right things for the wrong reasons. Jesus sent us to do something, namely make disciples, but he didn't send us to do everything. Now, you say, really, is what you're saying that important that you're taking all this time to beat on it? and to prepare us to be a full-service church so that we make sure that the services we render are understood to be means to the end that Jesus has given us of making disciples? Is it really that important? Well, just to prove it to you, I have in my hand a book that I just received in the last couple of weeks, hot off the press, 2011, the title of which is, What is the Mission of the Church? I bought a copy of this book for every member of our leadership team. I recommend it to you. It's very good, very good. And I would like to read for you some excerpts from this book that deal with this very issue of making sure that we clearly define what our mission is so that the mission doesn't become everything. And we are focused then in using those things in order to achieve the end that Christ has called us to. They say, the authors say, it used to be that mission referred pretty narrowly to Christians sent out cross-culturally to convert non-Christians and to plant churches. But now mission is understood much more broadly. Environmental stewardship is mission. Community renewal is mission. Blessing our neighbors is mission. Mission is here. Mission is there. Mission is everywhere, they say. And then they quote one fellow who says, listen, if mission is everything, then mission is nothing. And if mission is everything, then I guess I don't know what our mission really is. Jesus has given us what our mission is, and then other things are a means to that end. They say the ambiguity of the term mission is only augmented by the recent proliferation of terms like missional. Any of you familiar with that? If you do any missionals, like the, one of the buzzwords. So be missional. Or missio dei, the mission of, of God. And so they go on to say, here are three things that we really need to be careful of as we carry out mission. And bear with me as I give these to you. They say, we are concerned that good behaviors are sometimes commended, but in the wrong categories. For example, many good deeds are promoted under the term social justice when we think loving your neighbor is a better category. 
or folks talk about transforming the world when being a faithful presence in God's world is a better way to describe what we're trying to do and what we actually can do in the world. Or well-meaning Christians talk about building the kingdom. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Or building for the kingdom. But as you look in Scripture at the verbs, the actions that are attached to kingdom, they're always passive. You receive the kingdom. You inherit the kingdom. You enter the kingdom. We'd do better to speak of living as citizens of the kingdom rather than telling our people that we build the kingdom. Friends, we're not building the kingdom. We are trying to reach future citizens of the future kingdom. The kingdom is yet to come. Thy kingdom come. That's why our church doctrinal statement is pre-millennial. Millennium, kingdom, pre, Jesus comes prior to the establishment of the kingdom. They say, secondly, we're concerned that in our newfound missional zeal, we sometimes put hard oughts on Christians where there should be inviting, in quotes, cans. And so here's what they mean. Someone will say, you ought to do something about human trafficking. Or you ought to do something about AIDS, or you ought to do something about lack of good public education. And when you say ought, you imply that if the church does not tackle those problems, they are being disobedient. Their point, I think right, is the church can do those things. And perhaps the church will do those things as a means to the mission Jesus has given us. But the church is not called to solve every human need. And then thirdly, We're concerned that in all our passion for renewing the city or tackling social problems, we run the risk of marginalizing the one thing that makes Christian mission Christian, namely, making disciples of Jesus Christ. So friends, as we as a church seek to be a church that is full service, understand that we want to be a church that engages in these things in order for the reputation of God's church and those who are His ministers be enhanced with those who need the gospel, but always, always, always we do it as a means to give the gospel to those who desperately need it. I'll read you one more quote, and thank you for your, thank you for your patience. And so they ask the question, well, then what should the church do at the end of the book? And I think they give a good answer to it. They say, imagine a company whose mission is to make and sell widgets. Would it be illegitimate for that company to spend some of its resources holding a company picnic for its employees? No. Actually, the company leaders may well decide that a picnic will further the company's mission of selling widgets by raising corporate morale, fostering teamwork, and so on. Of course, the picnic furthers the mission more indirectly than buying airtime for a widget commercial, but it still furthers the mission. In the same way, we believe a local church could very well decide that adopting a local school or spending time and resources improving that school is actually a good way, though indirect, of furthering the mission of bearing witness to Jesus and making disciples. Maybe it raises the profile of the church or wins a hearing for the gospel among the people of the town. Another local church could decide to support a soup kitchen, even one that doesn't present the gospel at every meal for the same reasons. 
It's a display of love that may help to break down misconceptions of the church, circumvent people's defense mechanisms against Christians, and open the way for the gospel to be heard. Still another church may decide that it can support and further the mission by giving money to and taking trips with a group that digs clean wells in impoverished countries. Not because they're bringing in the kingdom or building for the kingdom or participating in God's work of remaking the world. But because over time they're making friends, breaking down barriers to the good news of Jesus being heard and accepted. Friends, we need to remember this in the words of one author. There's something worse than something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. There's something worse than death. Did you know that? There's something worse than physical disease. There's something worse than malnutrition. There's something worse than people not becoming all that they could be. And as much as we want to, and by God's grace, will help as God allows us to be a full-service church in meeting those kinds of needs, there's something worse than death, and there is something better than human, human flourishing in this life. And the author goes on to say, if we hope only for renewed cities and restored bodies in this life, then we are, of all people, to be most pitied. See, God has given us the gospel to make disciples. That is our mission. And he has settled us by his providence in this community to be a light into darkness. There are many people who are very apprehensive, understandably, in many cases, about the church. We want to break down those barriers by showing the community the love of Jesus, by truly meeting needs as he allows us to do that but always, always, always staying on mission to give people the thing that they absolutely need the most, the good news of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in the next few weeks going to continue to look at this issue of service using divine resources in order to meet human needs through loving channels, we'll look at that next week, to the glory of God. But I've talked about giving the gospel and making disciples as the most important thing. Friend, your most important need is that you be rightly related to the God who made you. And if you've never come to Jesus Christ, then you are outside of the family of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Every one of us comes into this world separated from our God. And it is only by the grace of God that we can be reunited to Him. That grace is extended to us through God the Son, Jesus Christ, having come to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live. And He died a death to pay the penalty that you are supposed to pay. He did that for you. He did that for me. And the good news is, God has done what you could not. He's done it for you, and you can receive his free gift of salvation. Now, how do you do that? The Bible tells us. Realize who you are. Realize that you come into this world without a relationship with God because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Recognize who Jesus is and what he did for you. God came, died for you, lived for you, and now offers to you his perfect life and his death on the cross. And then repent of your sins. That means I'm going to follow you now, God, with my life. 
I give my life to you. And you receive him into your life. You do that by asking. Nothing you can do to receive him into your life. You've already tried to be good. You're not good enough. Neither am I. So there's nothing you can do. You receive and you receive by asking. So we're going to bow in just a moment. And when we bow, you from your heart to God, acknowledge to him, Lord, I have sinned against you and therefore I'm separated from you. In your own words, you say to him, I need the salvation, the deliverance, the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can provide. I believe he died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I want to follow you. I give you my life. He promises, he promises, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together.